0: Quick, what's the first symbol that comes to your mind when you hear the word Christianity? Now, I'm sure there are a few folks here with different ideas. This is a Unitarian Universalist congregation, after all. But odds are that most of you thought of the symbol of the cross. Even as a child, it struck me as odd that an entire religion would revere as their most sacred symbol an instrument of torture of punishment and of death. Rita Nakashima Brock and Rebecca Parker, theologians and scholars, had some problems with this symbol as well, or more precisely, with the interpretation of it in modern day Christianity. Having grown up in Christian churches and having pursued graduate theological training in a Christian setting, they were troubled by mainstream Christianity's interpretation of the cross as a symbol and of its embrace of Jesus' suffering on the cross as a spiritual virtue. In their first book together, Proverbs of Ashes, they challenge this theology in an exploration based on deeply personal stories, stories of abuse and assault, of self-loathing and hatred, of murder and guilt. They are stories of the most isolated and terrifying moments both of their lives and of the lives of those to whom they have ministered over the years. When one stops to absorb these stories, to really listen to them, it becomes apparent that something is wrong with the dominant Christian teachings about suffering. People are regularly taught that if they choose not to endure suffering, they are weak and faithless. This worldview is so rampant that as a hospital chaplain, I participated in seminars on how to provide pastoral care to patients who believed that their pain and suffering was a part of God's plan, that enduring pain was somehow what they needed to do in order to prove their faith to God. And time and again, I encountered patients who looked to me to help them figure out where they had strayed from the path of righteousness in order to deserve their fate. Now, I could not in good conscience even pretend to believe in a God who would do such a thing. Sometimes this was comforting to my patients, but at other times it led them to reject me as a spiritual leader. This view of redemptive suffering is based in current interpretations of the Christian scriptures, and is exacerbated in a culture in which biblical literalism is on the rise. In the book of 1 Peter, it is written, For it is a credit to you if, being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. This is one text among many, used to exhort people to endure suffering. Others are found throughout our modern translations of the Bible. Again and again, they point to a faith in which pain and suffering is prized as a spiritual value. Brock and Parker were right, to call our attention to stories in which this dogma leads directly to the perpetuation of evil in our world, rather than to salvation or saintliness. If religious dogma leads women to endure abuse, if it leads gay and lesbian people to endure being ostracized from churches, if it leads people of color to endure racism, if it leads people of all kinds to endure the pain of depression and emotional isolation, there's a problem with the doctrine, not with the people, they argue. If a woman is taught to believe that the pain inflicted by her abusive husband is a test of her faith and her willingness to keep her family together no matter what the personal cost, there is a problem with what she is being taught and not with her. In the end, the most powerful message of Proverbs of Ashes is precisely this, that there is something wrong with traditional Christian messages about suffering and redemption, and what is wrong with them can be fixed in a way that is authentic to Christianity, even if it requires a radical rethinking of what Christianity is. To know that the presence of God endures through violence is to know that life holds more than its destruction, Brock and Parker write. In Proverbs of Ashes, they envision a world in which the focus of Christian religious teachings is on the love and healing power of God, and not on the destructive power of violence in our world. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, they conclude. In their most recent book, Saving Paradise, Brock and Parker take their exploration of suffering in Christian theology back 2,000 years to the earliest Christian societies. They journeyed to the Mediterranean basin to learn about early Christian societies, hoping to understand where modern day Christianity's views of suffering and redemption came from. And they were shocked to find out that in their words, it took Jesus a thousand years to die. Images of his corpse did not appear in churches until the 10th century. They consulted with art historians, archaeologists, and countless other experts. They traveled to churches and catacombs, ruins and monasteries. Nowhere was a depiction of Jesus on a cross to be found. Fascinated by this learning, they set out to understand why it was so. After a little digging, they traced the emergence of Christianity's focus on the crucifixion of Jesus to the 10th and 11th centuries. The earliest known crucifix survives in Cologne, Germany. It was carved from wood in the year 965 by Saxons, who had been baptized against their will by the Holy Roman Emperor Charlemagne during a three-decade campaign of terror. As Brock and Parker write, Charlemagne's armies slaughtered all who resisted. They destroyed shrines representing the Saxons' tree of life. They deported 10,000 Saxons from their land. Pressed, into viol- pressed by violence into Christian obedience, the Saxons produced art that bore the marks of their baptism in blood. As Christianity became tied to the brutality of the Holy Roman Empire, the image of the crucified Christ took a central place in the religion again from Brock and Parker. The ninth century's new focus on the crucified Christ coincided with a shift in the Christian prohibition against the shedding of human blood. For centuries, the church had taught that participation in warfare was evil, that killing broke the fifth commandment, and that soldiers were to perform penance to cleanse their souls from the stain of blood. At the dawn of the Holy Roman Empire, Christianity began to lose its grip on the sinfulness of killing. A new age began, one in which the execution of Jesus would become a sacrifice to be repeated, first on the Eucharistic altar, and then in the ravages of a full-blown holy war. They continue. The decisive turning point came in 1095, when Pope Urban II called the First Crusade, Urban summoned nobles, bishops, monks, and laity from across Europe to Clermont, France, where he urged them to take up arms and journey to Jerusalem to attack the Turks. Urban told them, Your own blood, brothers, your companions are flogged and exiled as slaves for sale in their own land. Christian blood, redeemed by the blood of Christ, has been shed, he said, And Christian flesh, akin to the flesh of Christ, has been subjected to unspeakable degradation and servitude. Urban then pronounced the ultimate incentive. Whoever goes on the journey to free the church of God in Jerusalem can substitute the journey for all penance for sin. With these words, he reversed nearly a thousand years of Christian teaching about the sin of shedding human blood. War ceased being a sin and became a way to atone for sin. Killing became a mode of penance, a pathway to paradise. It was the mixture of religion and empire and the resulting need to justify the violence of war in the name of religion that led Christians to embrace a theology that said that Jesus' suffering on the cross was meant to atone for the sins of humanity. It was the mixture of religion and empire which led to the theology that our suffering as humans only brought us closer to the suffering Christ. With the rise of an imperial Christianity, the crucifix became a central symbol for the religion. But before this, How did Christians understand their religion? What were the symbols in their churches? As Brock and Parker found out, the main symbol in the first millennium of Christianity was that of paradise, a lush, abundant garden of goodness and delight. This was not a paradise relegated to a time after death, either. According to Brock and Parker, in the world of early Christianity, paradise had both a here and, and a not-here quality. Christians taught that paradise had always been here on earth and that sin closed off the possibility of its manifestation. They write, While Christians could taste, see, and feel the traces of it in ordinary life, they arrived most fully in paradise, in community worship, with its art and buildings the church created a space that united the living on earth with the heavenly beings and departed saints who surrounded and blessed the living. As we heard in the reading earlier, to Christians in the first millennium, the rite of the Eucharist, what many of us know today as the Christian ritual of communion, had a very different meaning then than it does now. To early Christians, this ritual was the summoning of paradise here on earth a ritual that connected worshipers to all of creation with the possibility of an existence permeated with the love of God. To Christians in the first millennium, the goal of their religion was not proving their worth to God through right action and suffering. It was not a matter of shedding blood in the name of Jesus or of the attainment of salvation in some afterlife. The goal of their religion was to create a world in which everyone could have access to paradise, right here, right now, on earth as it is in heaven. Their goal was to create God's paradise in their midst and to express gratitude for every piece of paradise that they experienced while they were alive. And yet, We are much more familiar today with a later version of Christianity, one born of violence and suffering and bloodshed in the name of the empire. This version, the one that centers on the suffering of Jesus as the key to salvation, has been challenged by both Unitarians and Universalists, not to mention Unitarian Universalists, for hundreds of years. Our Unitarian ancestors rejected the divinity of Jesus taking redemptive meaning away from his death. Instead, they focused on his teachings and life, which pointed the way towards justice and right relationship with all of creation. Our universalist ancestors envisioned a religion in which humanity saw itself as part and parcel of a universe in which perfect love existed and touched all beings. They preached a gospel of universal salvation, eliminating the need for the suffering of Christ to be repeated in the lives of humans. A Christian religion focused on death, suffering, and salvation in the afterlife has also been challenged by any number of liberal Christians who were neither Unitarian nor Universalist. These Christians have rejected the notion that personal salvation for individual souls is the center of Christianity. Among others, Baptist theologian Walter Rauschenbusch, writing in the second decade of the 20th century, roundly criticized an imperial Christianity that sanctioned violence in this world in the name of achieving salvation in the next. Many African American theologians, civil rights leaders, and activists against slavery and racism have also seen the ease with which violence could be justified in the name of a God who sent his son to suffer on earth. From W.E.B. Du Bois to Ida Wells Barnett to Martin Luther King, Jr., many have stood up and rejected the notions that progress in this world was an unworthy religious goal. They rejected the notion that the work of creating justice for the living was theologically inferior to seeking salvation for the dead. Brock and Parker write, that at the dawn of the 21st century, North American Christians are engaged in deep conflicts generated by their struggle for paradise. Reiterating Christian perspectives that echo imperial Christianity, popular forms of Christianity today bless conquest and colonization, privilege those with wealth and status, sanction war against evildoers, and exploit the environment, the paradise they offer is on the other side at the end of the world. Brock and Parker challenge all of us to claim a more positive theology, to offer the early and they offer the early Christian theology of paradise as an alternative to one that embraces violence and suffering. They challenge us to understand that we can create paradise here. They write Paradise is human life, restored to its divinely infused dignity and capacity, and it is a place of struggle with evil and injustice, requiring the development of wisdom, love, nonviolence, and responsible uses of power. Power can be experienced as a spiritual illumination of the heart, mind, and senses felt in moments of religious ecstasy, It can be known in ordinary life, lived with reverence and responsibility. Paradise is not a place free from suffering or conflict, but it is a place in which spirit is present and love is possible. In this complex society, in which violence in the name of theology is frighteningly commonplace, Unitarian Universalists come together without dogma or creed, bound by principles that guide our institution's actions in the present. When I'm asked to explain whether Unitarian Universalists believe in life after death, I usually stop to explain that, like most things, it depends on the person. What we do believe, I often say, is that we have the power to create a better world while we're still alive, so we tend to focus on that and leave the matter of what happens after we die as something to be discovered when we're there. We celebrate together the milestones of our lives, our moments of joy and of sorrow. Here we teach one another, we feed one another, we share our thoughts and opinions with one another. We act together for justice, for peace, and for good. This, my friends is our religion's modern-day embrace of a theology of paradise. Whatever you and I believe or don't believe about God, about Jesus, about death, or about salvation, we can agree that together we can create a better world right here in the present. Some of us would call this making manifest the love of God on earth. Some Would call it creating the beloved community. Some would call it recognizing the sacred in the world all around us. Some would call it the creative power of humanity. Today, I might call it seeking paradise, and it's a worthy goal for all of us. May it be so.